2: See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
1: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
2: Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone, and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects, and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. As an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with the latest Eye on Travel podcast. This week, coming from Nîmes in France, perhaps the most Roman city outside of Italy, but with a great history. It's also the site for something called A World for Travel, the annual conference on travel and sustainability, plus an opportunity for me to sit down with some of the world's leaders in travel. Amadisa, the Minister of Tourism and Antiquities of Egypt, on the lessons learned from the pandemic, not just in terms of public health, but also public safety and tourism. Then to Randy Durbin, the CEO of Global Sustainable Tourism Council, and his focus on large ship cruising and some of the radical changes being made to make the ships environmentally friendly, or perhaps friendlier. And I'll also sit down with Dino Michael, the Senior VP for Hilton, on changing traveler behavior when it comes to sustainability and luxury. First up,
1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without autopay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.
2: Graduation is a sweet occasion, but finding the perfect gift can be a bitter struggle. MMS.com has a solution.
4: How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. And a,
0: and a, and a graduate of UNC in Chapel Hill.
4: I did. Uh, did. I'm a fellow Tarheel Heel, actually, uh, 2003.
0: Uh, great, I love it, I love it. But they didn't have such a good basketball team then.
4: They do. They do now. Uh, and and I'm, I'm afraid that the two years I was there, you know, they weren't as good. But uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm very proud of the <laughs> basketball team there.
0: So let's talk about Egypt, because you can't mention Egypt without mentioning tourism. Uh, it's so much a part of your GDP. Um, and if anybody is listening to the show, it's easy to get there. Many nonstop flights now out of, out of the East Coast, especially. But the most important thing is, you know, people in America worry about safety. They worry about fear. Uh, I was there, I mean, during Tahrir Square. I was there for the Arab Spring. Um, other than the actual moment of Tahrir Square, if you walked four blocks away, the Four Seasons Hotel was just doing business. Correct. Uh, Sharm El Sheikh was fine. Correct. Uh, the, the Giza was fine. Uh, Luxor was fine. And and those of you who are regular listeners to my show know, I take issue. Even the intentions are good, but I take issue with State Department advisories because I don't think they're as intention, as well-intentioned as they may be. I think they send the wrong message. I think they're painting with too broad a brush of a stroke. I have the same issue with the British Foreign Office uh, with their with their warnings. At that point, I have never felt unsafe in Egypt. Uh, In fact, my last name is Greenberg. I mean, what else do you want me to say? So, Mr. Minister, you've had time, uh, not because you planned it, but the pandemic gave everybody time to think, to prepare, to anticipate, to learn lessons, to apply them. What were the lessons that you learned during the pandemic when you had the time to think that you're now applying now to your tourism product?
4: Well, uh, Peter, thank you very much for inviting me here to your show, and um, it's a great pleasure. What I can tell you is, uh, let me first address the security. The numbers actually show that uh, Egypt is a safe country. There is no doubt about that. The numbers prove it, and facts prove it. Now, to the lessons. What, you know, I think the, it's been an eye-opener for everyone uh, what the tourism industry around the world has gone through. And the Egyptian government has put together several programs to try to keep the industry working, to try to keep the hotels open. It's a fragmented industry, and it depends on small and medium-sized enterprises. So they went through very difficult times over the past couple of years. There's no doubt about it. But the good thing is, actually, we're past it. We're almost past it. This year, 2022, every month, the numbers has been has shown volume recovery, and... I think we started the year with about 25% of the peak volumes in October. We are at the peak volumes. So already already. And so the volumes have have recovered, despite the fact that the some of the source markets for Egypt has also suffered uh, several setbacks. I think the 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 revival of the private sector and the policies of the government over the past couple of years and has made the private sector and the airports in Egypt resilient, has made the tour operators and the airliners um, look at Egypt favorably. And we have regained the trust and confidence of those stakeholders very, very quickly because of the policies that has been enacted over the past couple of years.
0: You know, I remember when I first went to Egypt, I had to get a visa. It was a long process. I had to put a big stamp on my passport, all of that. Now you get a visa on arrival.
4: Well, one, and you're, you're among 180 plus countries actually who can get a visa on arrival uh, if you have a you know U.S. passport or uh, a U.S. visa that's been used. Or a schengen visa or a uk visa or australian visa or a japanese visa if you if you hold any of these visas on your passport and you've only used it once you're among 180 plus countries who can just get the visa on arrival and pay 25 bucks for it
0: and by the way that's 180 out of 196 not bad absolutely so let me talk about what we went through in the united states what the tourism industry went through because we've seen the the great resignation we've seen the great migration We've seen staffing shortages across the board, not just at hotels and tour operators, airlines as well. Did you have a similar problem in Egypt?
4: Well, I think I think the recovery has been um, magnificent. I, I I should say, and despite the fact that the, some of the source markets actually have um, uh, are going through some political issues, I think we're we're. Well uh, the revival in the U and in the interest from markets like the U S market, uh, the German market uh, is, has, has made up for all the uh, lost volumes.
0: And of course in the United States, what the pandemic did, nobody planned for it is it allowed people to sit back and reassess their life, reassess their income, their cost of living, their style, of living, their location, right? People moved, but in Egypt, it's so much of your industry, so it's travel and tourism. Nobody really was going to be moving, they just had to be supportive.
4: Well, the support has been good for the, uh, but it's again, it, it, all, it will always go back to the, to the essence or the key competitive advantage in, in Egypt. It's the people and the fact that it offers um, cultural experiences uh, that, that are very unique to Egypt. The pyramids, the Sphinx, Luxor and so on, of course, those things. But Egypt offers a very important value proposition to travelers from the U.S. Um, the fact that the, because it's a long flight, uh, the, the uh, tourists from the U.S. will want to spend a week to two weeks uh, touring Egypt. You have to. And the, the thing is, there is something to do over two weeks in Egypt. Between, oh yeah. the, between the, the beach resorts, the magnificent beach resorts on the Red Sea, uh, and the Nile cruise and Luxor and Aswan, and of course the the Sphinx and the pyramids. I think there is, and the, of course the museums. I think the it's it's a it's a very unique experience that people can um, find and 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 deal with actually for 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 more than two weeks actually.
0: Well, you forgot one, Alexandria, because I like to go to Alexandria. I wait till midnight, and I go to all the bakeries for rice pudding.
4: Oh yeah. Oh, the best! Yeah. yeah, absolutely the best, right? Absolutely, the food there—you know—the the, the seafood in Alexandria is like no other. It's really true. Yeah, it's—you know—I think I think I think you know if you if you haven't ha- if you haven't tried seafood in Alexandria. And by the way, the Alexandrians actually uh, uh, are very jealous. Uh, if you know, just make sure that you don't tell them that uh, uh, the poor Said seafood is better than theirs.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll try not to. Yeah, but basically. There are the usual suspects, right? The pyramids of Giza. You've got, you know, Luxor. you got the Nile cruises, right? But even in Cairo alone, even if you never saw the pyramids, what I love to do is, I think the restaurant's still open. I go to Paprika. I get them to give me the barbecue. I get a felucca I just hang out in Cairo.
4: Yeah, yeah. The, the, the people in Egypt are, uh, you know, I've... I've- as, as you know, I lived in North Carolina for two years, and I've toured the world. There is something about the people of this country that is very welcoming. That is uh, that they want to talk to people. You well, know, they want to have a conversation. Absolutely, they they really want to have a conversation on the street. You know, just complete strangers. They really want to have a conversation. You know, they they will. Some tourists actually have complained to me uh, from um, staring. In Egypt, But actually, it's looking to see if you need something. Most of it is, is this way in, in Egypt.
0: I was about to tell you my great cab driver story. I'm from New York. So that automatically th- makes me think I know everything. <laughs> it's 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I'm at a New York hotel. I have a 6 o'clock flight on a Friday afternoon from Kennedy to LA. I'm leaving the hotel a little late at 4 o'clock. Right? Traffic, craziness. There's a cab sitting out in front. I wave to the cab driver. He comes by. I get in. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going on this flight on American Airlines, Terminal 8 JFK. Here's what I want you to do. Go up Madison Avenue, then turn right, go out to the thing. He goes, what time your flight? I said, six o'clock. He says, I have better way. I said, excuse me, man. I'm from New York. Do not mess with me. He says, I tell you what, you're not at Terminal 8 in 19 minutes, cab ride free. I went, really? I said, okay, you're on. Well, I've lived in New York all my life. He took me down alleyways and side streets I have never seen before in my life. And 18 minutes later, we pull up to the terminal. And he says, what do you think? I said, what do I think? What's your name? William, William what? William Magala. Where are you from? Alexandria. Of course. I said, is this your cab in New York? Is this your medallion? I said, yes. How'd you like to be my driver from now on? So he had yellow cab. He gave me his number. He had a phone in the cab, right? He became my driver for three years. My mother didn't like the shirts he wore. She bought him shirts. It was hysterical. And then one day, I swear to God, I'm in his cab, and he says, you know my cousin Billy who sometimes drives for you when I can't? I said, yes. Well, he's getting married in July. This is in March. And we'd like to invite you to the wedding. I said, I would be honored to come. Yeah. Great. And he's driving me in March and April and May, and all of a sudden, it's in the middle of June, and he says, you're coming to the wedding, right? I said, oh my God, when's the wedding? He says, it's next month. I said, yeah, of course I'm coming to the wedding. The wedding's in Alexandria. Uh- i went it was an egyptian coptic wedding in king Farouk's palace it started at 10 o'clock at night i was the only one in the wedding not going (laughs) and and when the wedding was over what do we do rice pudding at one o'clock in the morning of
4: course and you know
0: what when i land in alexandria now i met at the i met there by 25 people because Mm. i'm not part of the family
4: yeah Yeah, that's egypt and and that's that's what i think I would really like to welcome tourists, visitors. Actually, I want to call them visitors, for really looking to experience the cultures of others. Because this is, I think, what tourism should really be about: to experience how others live, or think, and and live their lives. How the the other cultures of people have developed over years. Because humans, after all, I think, are very like each other. They, you know, we're all we want the same thing. Exactly, and we, I think, learning about. Other cultures living the way they live and eating the way they eat and talking and is 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 going to be the future in tourism.
0: Well, my definition of a tourist is victim waiting to happen. My definition of a traveler is a tourist who's been victimized who now knows better and embraces your philosophy about experience and conversation.
4: You know, as I as I tour the world, I think tourism has made me a better person. They've you know some of my. Um, my best learnings in life has happened at the Met, for example. And as I've seen, you know, if if you walk the Met, starting from the uh, Egyptian uh, pavilion on, on Gee, the. Gee,
0: what a surprise! You start at the Egyptian pavilion.
4: Oh yeah, <laughs> and and but then, when when you actually walk the Egyptian pavilion, you'll find, you can watch in, in the Met, how the human mind has developed over the years by watching how the art has gotten more sophisticated.
0: Can I give you a piece of trivia? Please do. Do you notice where the Egyptian pavilion is, with mm. the glass wall? Mm. Do you know who designed that? No. Jacqueline Kennedy, you know mm. why? No. She was on the board of the museum and they wanted to do the Egyptian pavilion and she and she lived on Fifth Avenue four blocks away with a, with a view overlooking the park. She said, we should do this, but only if I get to see it at night. That's why it's there. Ah,
4: okay, that's the, I didn't know that.
0: Aren't you glad I stopped by? Oh yeah, thank okay. you, thank
4: you. What? I, I, as I said, you know, if you if you really walk the pavilion, yeah, um, you'll find you're 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 walking about three, two, two to three thousand years of history. Watch how the. Art has developed, has gotten ever more sophisticated as you walk through 2,000 years in history in that in that pavilion, and then think about how the human mind has developed, and then go to the second stair, to the second level in the in the museum, and, and continue to watch how the human mind has developed. And I think that's this is key as people travel around the world to to watch how civilizations has evolved, has moved, has 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 transferred through the people communicating with each other. And this is why I really am passionate about my current job.
0: The thing is, Americans really came face to face with Egyptology during the King Tut world tour. Oh, yes. That's already 25 years ago. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that if you take a look at all of the of the artifacts that have been found in Egypt, Right. I'm not talking about the ones that were looted by the British. I'm talking about, you're <laughs> laughing because you know, but I'm talking about all the artifacts that maybe one twentieth of, of, of what's been discovered, the other 1920ths are still out there in the desert.
4: This year, the world is celebrating the one hundredth, the centennial anniversary of the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Um Howard Carter actually, uh, I think, has discovered uh, a tomb, but then it's uh, the... Egyptologists of today that have given a life to the to those discoveries you know i think the it's the only civilization though that has a science attached to it and egyptologists do a fine work around the world but it's people like Zahi Hawass and the other you know so Dr Mustafa Absolutely amazing. Dr Mustafa Waziri and, and the the current tour guides in Egypt the 12,000 of them who actually bring this civilization to life every day as they show it to the Americans and other nationalities?
0: It can be said that, and Egypt is certainly a prime example of this, if you go to the British Museum, if you go to the Met, if you go to 25 other museums around the world and you see the artifacts there from Egypt, there's a good chance that 25% of them to 40% of them, I'll, I'll use a polite word, were acquired. You didn't give them away.
4: Well, the, there's obviously uh, international treaties and there are laws that govern how these artifacts have come out of Egypt. Right. So Egypt is committed, of course, to every law and every treaty that it has signed. But we are also committed to bringing back every artifact that has left the country unlawfully.
0: And In fact, in the last 20 years, that's only been a really recent development in 20 years where countries are actually aggressively trying to retain and return their heritage
4: absolutely and and each year we manage to retrieve thousands of artifacts that have left the country um, Unlawfully.
0: I mean, and some real surprises too.
4: Absolutely, and some. And, you know, some of the most respected museums in the world have made mistakes. The good thing is actually that the respected museums, once they discover those mistakes, they report it. And every every day, I receive a message from one of the ambassadors in in Egypt, actually, telling me, "Hey, um, you know, one of our Egyptologists, well, you know, some of the, our authorities, have found this." So I think I think there is a rising movement in the world that recognizes the the right of countries of origin of our and archaeology for their uh, for their artifacts that have left the country unlawfully.
0: You know, it's not just Egypt, it's other countries in Africa as well. Absolutely. Benin. Oh my God, the Benin bronzes and Absolutely. all those other artifacts that just left. And finally, one by one, I'm, I'm watching as many Heads of state, when they do state visits to different countries, are making it a, a condition of their visit that they won't come back unless they get to come back with some of those artifacts.
4: So here's a here's a think an interesting story for you, Peter. Actually, the the had Howard Carter discovered the uh, the tomb eight months earlier. It wouldn't have stayed in Egypt. Tell me more. Well, the it was around the nas- the rise of nationalization in uh, in in Egypt at the time, and the. Uh, Egypt has just been declared independent during uh, that that year and as a result of that the um, uh, any artifacts that was found in Egypt uh, had to stay in in Egypt and then there uh, several laws has come afterwards UNESCO of course has been established in the 1970s and as a result of that actually the the whole world now understands the the Um, the right of the countries to uh, remain their heritage. And Egypt has been very good to its heritage because it's not only our heritage, it's a heritage of humanity. And this country has always been uh, ready to fulfill its responsibility towards this um, uh, heritage of of humanity. And the Grand Egyptian Museum is one fine proof of that.
0: Well, what it really is, it's storytelling, and if the artifacts are looted, you're interrupting the story,
4: right? Absolutely, and and it's, you know, I, I understand the need for science to to to, um, um, you know, to, to look into the uh, archaeology and uh, try to understand history through through our, through that prism, but. Um, if, if you look at how Egypt is going to take, uh, is taking care of its heritage, you know, we, we, we have 2,000 archaeological sites in Egypt, 2,000 archaeological sites. That
0: you know of. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
4: Uh, thank you. Thank you. There are 200 plus um, uh, missions, as we speak today, that are uh, excavating for further… Uh, it's amazing. And, and they are from 24 nationalities. Twenty four 24 nationalities. So we've, we're, we've opened our doors. You know, we've, I think Egypt has played again, as I said, you know, it's uh, we've been trying to uh, not confine the research and science to, to our Egyptologists. No, you know, 200 plus missions today from 24 wow. nationalities are excavating as we speak today. Uh, they, have Im- they are employing foreigners and they are employing Egyptians actually to those uh, to those missions. And those those uh, missions are happening from Siwa on the western borders of uh, of Egypt to Aswan, to Alexandria, to even Sinai. And
0: now you mentioned the, the Grand Egyptian Museum, so I can't let you go without asking one question. And that is, and this is all to my listeners who've been asking me every single week. This is such an amazing museum. I was able to go in it four years ago as they were building it, looking at all the restoration rooms. Give me a very fast answer. When is it opening?
4: We're going to determine that over the coming few weeks. um, We've been very excited with the interest happening from the heads of states to attend the opening. So we obviously now understand that we need six months to prepare for that. But you'll let me know. Absolutely. Within, you know, within the month of December, before the end of December, you will, you will know.
0: Done. My thanks to Minister Issa. So are large cruise ships and responsible travel incompatible? Randy Durbin, the CEO of the Global Sustainable Tourism Council, used to think so. But then he says a few things changed.
1: What makes a life a good one?
5: Great. Nice to be with you, Peter.
2: So the last time we
0: talked, we were focusing on, on cruise ships and sustainability mm-hmm. because that almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? I mean, because so many people are saying, oh, well, all, all a cruise ship does is impact the environment negatively. It's toxic. It's this. And yet what's interesting to me is, you know, beware of the, the law of unintended consequences. The pandemic accelerated sustainability in terms of cruise lines because there was that CDC no-sail order, which gave them the time not to mention the, the imp- imperative to truly get things together in terms of ventilation, in terms of social distancing, in terms of medical facilities, in terms of materials and fuel and, and, uh, and toxic fluids. I mean, you, you go throughout the whole list that they were able to perform to 75 different protocols from the CDC before they were ever allowed to sail again, and that's just the cruise lines. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask the stupid question,
5: are things getting better absolutely they're getting better i was extremely skeptical and cynical frankly for a long time about long, large ship cruising but something changed around about 2008 somewhere there 2010 when virtually all new ship builds since that time frame are super environmentally friendly they're doing onboard first pass sewage treatment they're doing onboard recycling they're doing all sorts of things but they still I, 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 were ocean I, yeah. dumping for a while. I mean, they were still committing sins. I'm just starting. Oh, you. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got me started. <laughs> no, I'll,
0: I'll give you one story. I remember in 1984, I was on a ship and, and um, in the Mediterranean, and, the, and they, they said, oh, we're very environmentally friendly. What their definition of environmentally friendly was, they only burned the garbage at night so you couldn't see it. Yeah. And so I'd go out on deck, and my white shirt would become dark mm-hmm. because of all the soot. Right? They were burning everything. They were throwing stuff. I was seeing stuff being thrown overboard all the time. Now, you don't see
5: that. No, this little smartphone in our hand not only captures murder of George Floyd, but it captures environmental ocean dumping and all sorts of things. And the Coast
0: Guard, by the way, has done something amazing. They have a drone system that, that uh, they launched on the back of a C-130. And if they think a ship is dumping in the ocean... They will, they, will, they will trail this, they call it a drone, but it's not the drone you think is taking pictures. It's a drone they drop in the water. It's a scooper. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, they, and they trail behind the, si- the ship. They take water samples. And if the water sample shows pollution, it's like DNA. When that ship docks, they inspect the ship, and if it matches... It's, it's a huge fine. Mm-hmm. So at least they're stopping that.
5: Yeah. Well, I think so much has changed. I mean, we could go into various operational sides, and you and I were talking about port side electrification, but their attitudes have changed. They realized they had a PR <laughs> problem. They realized they were getting so much bad press that they had from a purely branding standpoint yeah. as an industry, and each individual brand had to change their game. So I do think it's genuine because I've seen them. Again, I started skeptically, but I've now seen them first half, up close you know changing a lot of things and uh it's genuine it's real and the good news is during covid when they had to shut down their business entirely they retired far more ships during covid than they intended to so now they got some of the old stuff that's now been dismantled and re you know so we have a higher percentage now of newer ships but again attitude in terms of policy we're working with them at ports largely in the mediterranean and aegean but elsewhere uh, and we've been doing our assessments against our global standards. And uh, and, they're very, and CLIA is very supportive of this, Royal That's Caribbean. the Cruise Lines International Association. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, what's interesting is you, know, you see that there's an evolution here in terms of the fuel sourcing. Um, they put in scrubbers at one point. Mm-hmm. Now they're, they're different. They're going to LNG. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norwegian just announced methanol. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for different sources.
5: Absolutely. And there's two other changes, government. EU has the most stringent regulations in the world, so because the giants Royal Caribbean and Carnival have brands in the Mediterranean and EU waters, they have to comply. And the second major hot point driving them is for change is Alaska, because as you know, the communities I, I think you you mentioned uh, somewhere I heard you say that uh, you know Alaska, some of the ports force them or ask them to get portside electrification. So those two places, sailing around what, the Caribbean, what that means just is that when the ship comes in. They do not keep the engines or
0: the generators running. They literally plug in. Right. And they plug into the electric grid, so there's nothing going in the air.
5: Exactly. And, of course, we're all hoping that the electrical grid gradually gets cleaner and cleaner over time. It's not sure. as clean as we'd like it to be today, but it will be, and we're moving in that direction, versus fossil fuel engines, which are not moving in the, in the proper direction. So side electrification is important, and uh, the EU is mandating it by 2030. So the ports in the EU waters are all forced. They have to comply, and they have to, they have to capacitate themselves at the port to provide that, that facility.
0: All right, so you just said you're just getting started, so let's talk about that. <laughs> we understand what they're doing in terms of emissions. We understand what they're doing in terms of, 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 of products, right? It's one thing for a cruise line to say, okay, we're no longer going to use single-use straws. You know, pla- that, okay, that was a start. Mm-hmm. And when you add up how many straws we're talking about, that's a lot of straws. It's a lot of plastic. But that's really not the bigger problem is
5: it no it's yeah it's it's food waste. It's just the whole, you know, the whole guest experience of people, the big village of thousands of people floating around.
0: All right. I'm going to set the scene for you, Randy. You've got a ship out there with 8,000 people on board, 5,500 passengers, about 2,500 crew. And I would ask the same question, by the way, if I was at a big hotel complex, when somebody flushes the toilet, where does it go? Mm -hmm. Right. When somebody washes, takes a shower, where does it go? Where, where does the water come for the shower? right? When somebody finishes their dinner, okay, and they take the ch- they take the dishes away, where does that go, right? And I'm asking you.
5: Well, I'm not a full expert on all the detail and all right. that, but I know a few things uh, about that. I know that, again, the newer ships have onboard pre-sewage treatment, so they're making a first step. So when they get to land where they're required, there are some good regulations in certain places now, you know, to then discharge the sewage in a proper way with the local facilities. But I don't really, I can't comment on what they do in places where it's really not required. (laughs) And what are they doing if three ports in a row aren't facilitated? These are question marks in my mind. uh,
0: I'll give uh, you an example. Uh, I live on a boat in Los Angeles and I'm required by law that I'm not allowed to do any dumping whatsoever until I'm out three miles. Wait a second. What, why would I want to do that at all, right? But that means if I want to pump anything overboard, I can do it after three miles out. Hmm. That seems to be the most ludicrous, silly, stupid, and dangerous
5: idea. Hmm. They claim they're not doing any more ocean dumping at all, they're, that they're properly disposing of sewage at ports. And again, the smartphone, I think, put a stop to it. Arnold Daniel at uh, Carnival. Arnold openly, Donald, yeah. Yeah, he openly talks about the fact that, you know, they got caught. With a smartphone recently, I think the last time was about eight or nine years ago, and he's vowed to never let that happen again. They get it, they were wrong, and they've changed protocols and training and all that. So, you know, um, we don't have evidence anymore. I mean, we used to have plenty of evidence of the past. You know, passengers are up all night on decks, like you. With their cell phones. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. All right, With the the police force, cell smartphone.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Everybody's a journalist now. Uh, All right, so what do you want to see happen now?
5: On cruise? Yeah. Uh, continued movement. I'd like to see more regulation in more places. You know, let's let's be honest about the elephant in the room that they, you know, I have great friends now in the industry but, you know, what they need to you know, they have to contend with is that they, ha- they use flags of convenience. You know, they might be based in Miami but the ships are all registered and Countries in the Caribbean that do not have anywhere near the labor protection laws of the United States We're or talking Europe.
0: Bahamas, we're talking
5: Liberia and Africa. Yeah, so they can dodge labor requirements, they can dodge environmental requirements. So they have to do all this voluntarily. This is where I got into EU and, and Alaska, really the only two places in the world where there's significant oversight. Now that's improving in Asia. Places like Singapore and others are upping their game. So they're going to face more you know, kind of regulatory pressures, it's coming coming everywhere. Um, So I think that's where it's going to go. In the the meantime, I hear them say a lot about self-policing and and cleaning all that up. But I think the, you know, the flags of convenience is an issue when, you know, they they didn't get a bailout during COVID because, you know, they had to prove their case about how much money is spent in the United States. But, you know, a lot of that, of course, is spent uh, in the Caribbean. And then they're not, you know, the, the ships aren't registered in the United States.
0: Right. Now, I will tell you, on on almost every ship I've been on in the last 10 years, they have an entire deck on that ship devoted to waste management. And and when I say management, that means with a zero tolerance policy that nothing gets thrown over, nothing gets burned. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that means that all the bottles get smashed, Mm -hmm. and all the cardboard gets compacted.
5: All, so there's hope there. Absolutely. In 29, 2010, I got a back of the house tour, the first uh, uh, sailing of the Oasis of the Seas, the first of the big of the Seas, six thousand passenger class. Blown away, and I was with other environmental advocates, and we were we all went in skeptically, and we came out. I was like, wow, this is good stuff. Something else. If, may I shift gears? Yeah. May I be the interviewer here. So the, the city of Venice is a very interesting case. Yeah. Now. You know, so there's been all this PR and all this discussion about ships obscuring the two, having two negative impacts in Venice, where they obscure the landscape because there's this big ship right. by this heritage architecture. And the other is that you're dropping off 2,000, 4,000, 6,000 passengers at a time. About 10 years ago, CLIA, the Industry Association, submitted a plan to the municipality of Venice to say, we don't like the bad press we're getting. We want to reroute. And the city said no. You know Why? because it's that
0: double-edged sword. They want the revenue. They want
5: the revenue. They, they
0: want the bridge of size to turn into the bridge of thought. But I
5: think it's fair for all the sins of the past to acknowledge the, the efforts of today. <laughs> right. You know, and then a year ago when it kind of came out, you know, I saw on blogs and this and that, people saying, oh, finally, Venice is doing the right thing. I said, no, Venice didn't do the right thing. The national government of Italy forced a municipality because UNESCO was threatening delisting the World Heritage Site. That's why it changed.
0: <laughs> My thanks to Randy. When it comes to the travel decisions we make, it used to be based on just price, location, and of course, let's not forget the perks. But there's been a quantum shift in that behavior and in the priorities we now assign to our travel decisions. And Dino Michael from Hilton is on top of some of those changes. Welcome. Thank you, great to be here. So let's talk about these numbers because for me, I saw the demand come back, you saw the demand come back, and it came back without sensitivity to price, without sensitivity to how much it was going to cost anybody. But I kept on thinking okay, by the end of September, you know, Labor Day being the great demarcation line, kids back in school, okay, it was going to drop off. It didn't. What happened?
3: I think the desire for travel is still there, continues to be there. I think people are. It's not just about revenge travel, as they say. I think there's just a long-term view. People want to get out, see more of the world. I think they've had time to reflect, seen what they get their bucket list done, um, get out there. But isn't it
0: more than a bucket list right now? Because the bucket list got thrown out the window during the pandemic. True. Because people had to redefine where they wanted to go based on social distancing, the ability to breathe, getting away, changing their lifestyle because so many were working remotely, right? So the bucket list kind of moved away a little bit.
3: But now you can do your bucket list and you can work at the same time, right? You can go you away. To, you just don't want to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> you can go away. You know, now with remote working, you can maybe extend that trip a few more days, work work online, offline, you know, come back, maybe see places or extend that business trip a few more days. I, I think it's it's a natural extension.
0: So what changed though? Because was it the number of, sta- number of days? Was it the location? Was it what they
3: were asking to do when they got to the hotel? I think it's a mix of everything. I think it's... Spending more time with with friends and family, with loved ones. Um, I think there's been a real shift towards thinking about oneself, you know, how do I enjoy my life a little better, you know, less materiality, a little bit more experiential, a bit more authenticity, Um, maybe finding that, that new and unique experience that isn't, you know, there's this Instagram reality, right, where you see these wonderful places, but the reality is there's 50,000 people on the beach. So trying to really find something new and unique, something interesting that's recommended by the team, that they can really feel like they're having an adventure again.
0: And you're seeing much more multi-generational travel, especially when there are moments of crisis. So I remember going back after 9-11, after the uh, economic debacle in 2008, the volcano erupting in 2010. And of course, after COVID, I remember, you, you no longer have this hotel, but back in 2008, 2009, I was in Paris working on a story. I walked into the old Hilton in Paris. It was jammed. You couldn't get a room. It was oversold with Americans. And I, they're all in the lobby. So I walked up to them. I said, you are aware there's an economic debacle. Yes, but you're here. Yes, why? And you know what? I got the same answer from everybody. They said, we felt if we didn't go now, we were never gonna go. It was sort of like a Last Supper mentality about travel. And I'm feeling that again now. Yeah,
3: look, being I think being restricted for so long, it allows you to really reassess. I think there's a real passion for new destinations. And again, it's not just time with family, it's time for yourself. And this real shift in trend towards your your wellness. I mean, we've been talking about wellness for a while. And, but we've you know, redefined it now. We have. But I think there's, we, we talked about it. We, we, there was an ambition. there's was a personal, t- yeah, I'm going to get healthier. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read more. I'm going to do this. But now there's a real, I think, uh, push behind it. I am going to do that. I am going to get healthier. I am going to you know, read more, see more, do more. And that's manifesting you know, to our benefit.
0: Of course, you've seen the changes. Five years ago, the definition of wellness was the hotel that said, we have a spa. right? At a gym and the gym, which by the way, nobody ever used, right? I mean, they all said they wanted it, nobody ever used it.
3: You'd pack your sneakers and not use them, right?
0: Exactly, so now, how has wellness been redefined?
3: We're thinking about it far more holistically from the way we design spaces, in luxury, we're lucky. We have a premium, we have space, we have you know, larger rooms, larger grounds, in resorts. We're now thinking about how we design areas of reflection, meditation, you know, how do you have outdoor classes, you know, take that yoga class, that Pilates class, the morning sunrise session. People are loving it, and we've, we've got the benefit of space. Maybe some equipment in your room that allows See, you to in, work
0: out. In my experience, my moment of reflection is going to a quiet space and
3: realizing what I just spent at the mini bar. I <laughs> was just a thought. A, we have a space like that in our Water for Stories. I bet you do. It's called the Library Lounge. You can sit there and reflect. <laughs> But they're, you're actually, you're, you're redesigning the, the floor plan then. We're thinking about our spaces, you know, physically, you know, our, our front desk, as technology moves on, for example, we've got a great digital key as part of our Hilton Honors app. So if you take away some of that friction in, in the guest journey, so queuing at a front desk, waiting for your key, you've come in late, if we can make all that, some of that friction go away through technology. The interaction that's left between you and a team member is positive. How can you help me plan my next trip? How can you help me find a great class nearby? How can you help me do something else?
0: So you're redistributing your human resources so that nobody's like on a line just to check in, but you could actually have a conversation.
3: Yeah, we want the same amount of team members, the same ratios there. We want to release I guess, some of the, the, the mundane elements of, of the guest journey, the, the guest arrival, and replace that with just positive interaction and have our team members really there looking at you and from a pre-arrival to post-departure, how can we make your stay better? How can we enhance it, amplify it?
0: I remember before the pandemic, looking at some of your lab work, you know, in your in your model rooms. Yep. And you, you'll remember this, right? The robot. Yes. Right? The robot butler, right? So they were demonstrating me to me, this robot butler was coming down the hall with a toothbrush or you know, something like that. They didn't last very long, did they?
3: No, you can never replace the human touch. You, you realize,
0: of course, that some of the robots, they got beaten up. College kids were <laughs> going to, with baseball bats in the hall. They found one robot that, escaped, that wanted to escape the hotel. You saw this, right? The robot literally tried to run away from the hotel.
3: Thankfully, a short-lived experiment.
0: So it's not around anymore
3: no it, look it, it, you can't ever replace the human touch the yeah. attitude of a team member the welcome you'll get i guess that that welcoming smile i mean even even i you know, i work for for hilton i have done for many years there's still that sense of relief and oh i'm i'm here i've arrived i'm going to get looked after and we want that sense of hospitality you know you're home you're being hosted that's the emotion i want and i think look we can build beautiful hotels we can build beautiful places but for me, the secret source is always going to be the team members. Well, you mentioned the emotional quotient.
0: There are some hotel chains that I know <clears throat> for which I feel no emotion. I'm there because I have to go to a convention and it's next to the convention center. Or it's corporate policy. I have to go there because of the, of the deal. Those guys are really in trouble right now because they've got nowhere to go but out. right? So you have to figure out what to do with that cookie cutter plot just to be able to make sure that you can find that emotional quotient.
3: But I think, you know, as, as an organization, you know, that, that philosophy transpires across all of our brands from, from Hampton all the way through to Ward of Astoria, you know, that welcome you'll get, that feeling of, you know, genuine, um, you know, I, I guess, happiness that we're here to serve you, host you, look after you, that translates across all of our brands. So now,
0: having said all that, what's your biggest challenge?
3: I think right now it's developing our team members and give them a chance to grow. I mean, as you know, that- Or find team members. But you you can find them. I think what we're finding right now is that we're having to bring in team members who maybe have never worked in hospitality before. Right, you got to train them. You know, not, forget a hotel, not even, you know, the industry. So I think for us, we hire for attitude first. And we have spent the last couple of years really developing and focusing our training materials, our development programs. What's the big thing that's changed in training? I think rooting them in the brand philosophy first. Once they understand the objective and they've got the attitude, the rest actually is fairly straightforward.
0: You know, I've said this before in so many other conversations because I've experienced it myself. If you and I were to go to have dinner tonight in in Italy, the person who's our waiter or waitress, that's not their job, that's their profession, right? It's what maybe their father or mother did before them. They love their job. The challenge that the hospitality industry has not to mention the entire service industry. And that was triggered, of course, the catalytic moment being the pandemic, is that so many people had a chance to reassess their job without realizing it might actually be a profession.
3: But I think the hospitality industry has to do a better job of really, you know, talking about the benefits. I mean, what jobs can you find where in one building you can be a lawyer, an accountant, a marketer, a finance specialist, a hospitality specialist, a chef. And on top of that, you get to travel the world with the company, have new experiences. I mean, it's an amazing industry. I think we should do more to, to really amplify you know, those elements.
0: And are you doing more?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the travel, seeing the world, meeting new colleagues, it, it is Hilton is your second family. And I think you find that, you talk to any one of our team members, they consider, you know they've got two families, one at home, one at work.
0: Now the question is to distinguish the two. <laughs>
3: uh, not necessarily. I mean, for me, it, look, my background is in hospitality my whole life. Um, And if I have three boys and the three godparents to my children all come out of the same restaurant, they're my family and always have been.
0: My thanks to Dino, to Randy Durbin, and to Minister Issa. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know exactly what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or
2: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.
1: The Hargan women seem to have it all. From
2: the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom...